Hi there, Pastor Austin Vondracek here. Thank you for joining us at Rosewood Church Online. My prayer for you is that this message will be used by God to bless, teach, and challenge you today. And whether you call Rosewood home and are catching up on a past message, or you're one of our many long-distance partners who tune in every week, would you consider giving back to support the ministries and missions of Rosewood Church? You can do so easily through our website, rosewoodchurch.org. And if you're listening and you're local to the West Michigan area, we would love to have you in person when the time is right for you. Again, I pray this blesses you and helps you grow in your love of Jesus Christ. Hey everybody. My name is Austin Vondercheck. I'm one of the pastors here at Rosewood Church and it's good to have you here whether you're online or in person. Uh, it's great to celebrate with you today through worship and through God's Word and through baptisms, which we have here uh, coming up in just a little bit. And that's the fun part of service, so why don't I, uh, why don't I get this moving? Uh, we are continuing, continuing in our series on Ephesians, looking at the book of Ephesians, the letter that uh, Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And last week we started with, of all places, Ephesians 1. And in Ephesians 1, we looked at God's election as the prelude to our faith and how, uh, you know, we saw that, that God's choosing of you uh, doesn't take away your ability to choose Christ, that it doesn't make him some sort of, God makes some, make him some sort of like puppet master who's in uh, uh, control of every single minute little, little thing. It doesn't mean that you don't have free will. What it does is election establishes the chronology of choice. You choose second. Because God chose you first. And that is in and itself one of the most beautiful acts of grace. An exchange of faith is an act of God's grace, which Paul gets into in more detail in Ephesians 2. Uh, but we're actually not going to start with Ephesians today. We're going to look at uh, Luke 18 together. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to it if you'd like, or on your phone, whatever it might be. Uh, but uh, we're going to start in uh, Luke 18, uh, in the ministry of Jesus' life, and a parable that Jesus shares. And uh, when Jesus began his public ministry, uh, he encountered a nation of Israel that was, that was divided. They were divided, well, divided in many ways, but one way in particular, what they were divided among how a person gains and maintains uh, good standing with God. And basically, you had, you had two camps at that time, two camps of, of people. One camp argued that you could earn right standing with God by keeping God's law perfectly. No slip-ups. If you do this perfectly, you will be in good standing with God. So you might ask, you might say to yourself, though, is that really possible? I mean, surely that's not possible. Well, you know what? Some of them did. Some people actually kept God's law perfectly. Kind of. Here's how they did it. What they would do is, uh, uh, for the, the behavior in themselves that uh, they believed they couldn't change, or just felt that they didn't want to change, uh, what these folks would do is just kind of dumb it down. They dumbed down the application of the law so that they could remain perfect. Again, the things that they felt they couldn't control or the things they didn't want to control, just dumb it down. That way you can be perfect. So the thing is, all they were really good at was perfection in self-delusion. And this other camp saw the self-delusion of the first camp and said, no, that is ridiculous, that if God's law was the standard, this second camp knew that they would never be good enough to earn 
God's favor. Now pretend that I checked my spelling as I made these slides uh, for just a moment here. Impossible to find, earn divine favor. Whatever, you get it. Uh, busy week. And uh, uh, so this second camp looked at that and said, it is impossible. You can't possibly live up to those standards. And so as a result, that's kind of where they had to stop. They said, I, we can't earn it according to God's law. And so they ran into this wall of hopelessness. If they can't earn it, then how could they possibly achieve it? Because this isn't how you get things, you earn things. And so the second camp was left in a place of just absolute, of hopelessness, because being right with God was impossible to achieve. And, and these two camps, or these two groups, were kind of like oil and water. They were always at each other's throats. They were always talking bad about the other person. The, the self-righteous would say that the uh, would make the, the, the second camp feel, or, or rather the, the first, uh, the second camp would make the first camp feel like hypocrites, and then the first camp would make the second camp feel like they're being judged all the time, and so it was just, they, all they did was fight. And truthfully, it's not all that dissimilar from people today. The temple in Israel then, or in Jerusalem, became kind of this common ground though, where oil and water got mixed up together. It was this common place where camp one and camp two came together uh, to worship through the sacrificial system. And Jesus uses the known social contempt and the known religious contempt to illustrate the need for grace for all people through a parable found in Luke 18. And here's how the story begins. Jesus told a story of two men who went up to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, and adulterers, or even like this guy, like the tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Translation, the Pharisee's good, but he's not just good, he knows he's good. Okay, And he points to his personal devotion and his generosity and his adherence to all of God's rules as proof that he is right with God. Now the Pharisees, in case you're not familiar with it, the Pharisees, they were Jewish religious leaders uh, who were obsessed with the rules. Okay, They were obsessed with the rules. Now, a lot of times in Scripture, the Pharisees are, point, are, are painted in a real pretty bad light, and a lot of times it's kind of earned that way. But also, not all the Pharisees were bad, and also not all the rules were bad. After all, God gave them these rules, or at least most of them. He gave them a lot of them, but some of them they also kind of made up and, and added to. But the point is, the Pharisees were still trying to kind of live under uh, God's rules. But the Pharisee also reveals the nature of the consequence of believing that being, made, uh, that being good makes you good with God. He kind of shows what goes on under the surface because at some point, if that's what you believe, at some point if you believe that you just need to follow the rules and be a good little boy or girl and then Jesus will accept you and give you his favor, well, here's what, the, here's what happens. is At some point, you have to answer a question. It's an extremely important question. You have to answer this question with confidence. How good is good enough? How good is good enough? Well, for the Pharisees, or, or rather, for one way of, of answering this question, how good is good enough, is just to be perfect. That's one way to be good enough with God, just be perfect. But that's not possible. 
No one's perfect. It doesn't even take faith to understand that no one is perfect. And so what is to happen if that's the case? Well, for the Pharisees and most people who believe some version of this, good enough is determined by a comparison to the people who are around you, okay? Works-based righteousness becomes a competition between believers. But here's a couple interesting things about this competition. For one, uh, not everyone knows that they're playing, okay? I have this with my lawn. I am in a competition with all of my neighbors for who has the best lawn. They don't know they're in the competition, but they are. I'm always comparing my lawn to my neighbors, trying to have the best lawn, okay? And so that's one case, is is when you play the how good is good enough game, you are in a competition with other people, and a lot of those other people don't even know that they're playing. Here's the second thing. We play that game with different sets of rules. We all have our own version of the rules, and the thing is, your version of the rules will always result in you ranking high enough to cross that line to be good enough. And this is not hard to do, is it? I mean, I think we still do this today. We still play the how good is good enough game, and we still make up our rules. In fact, I will tell you exactly the rules that you need to live by in order to win the how good is good enough game in your own little world. Here's what you do. You take the sins that other people struggle with, and you elevate them. And you take the sins you struggle with, and you justify them. And if you do those two things whatever is right for you, you will win the how good is good enough game. The Pharisee sees the man that's next to him, this tax collector who's next to him, and all he sees is another person that he's better than. And it becomes a point of pride so much so that he even prays. He says, God, thank you that I am not like him. Which kind of has a tone of God you're welcome that I am not like him. That's what happens. But then the tax collector, it says, stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You see, whereas the Pharisee saw himself basically as God's gift to earth from heaven, this tax collector, this, this, this thief, wouldn't even look up to heaven. He felt unworthy to even look up to heaven. And and he knew that he needed mercy and he was just crying out in hopes that something beyond himself or someone beyond himself would be able to save him. And with just one story here, Jesus pretty much sums up two dominant viewpoints. One group is not as good as they think they are. And the second group knows they're not as good as they need to be. But what both of them lack, actually, even though they feel like they're on opposite ends, what they both lack is this very thing that they're missing. For both of them, they're lacking an understanding of grace. For both of these camps, for both of these mindsets that still exist today, what they're lacking is grace. The antidote is grace, though it needs to be applied in different ways for each of them. The Pharisee doesn't see the need for grace, whereas the tax collector doesn't see grace at all. And perhaps this kind of murkiness that Jesus entered into is part of the reason why Paul says in Galatians that Jesus came at just the right time to, uh, just the right time 
uh, to set us free. And for the self-righteous, the way that Jesus sets us free is releasing us from rules into a life of relationship with Christ. And for the self-loathing, Jesus releases us from this limitless gap and gives us a bridge. Now, these two metaphorical people represent two extremes on one continuum. And I think in practice, there's some people who maybe are in one camp and not the other, to one extreme and not the other. But I think for a lot of us, we kind of have a little sliver of at least, at least a sliver of each of these in ourselves. And grace heals both the pride of the Pharisee in us and the helplessness of the tax collector. And here's how Paul makes his point in Ephesians, out of Ephesians 2. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved, which is what the tax collector needed to hear, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, part that the Pharisee's missing, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is a well-known text. If there was a greatest hits of the Bible, like a wow, that's what I call scripture, you know, version one, this would be on there. That's dated. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, so, so this is something that we all kind of know. It's something that's familiar to us. At least if you've been in a church long enough, these kind of verses are, are familiar to you. And for good reason. They're worth memorizing. They're worth turning to. They're worth being encouraged by. But the thing is with familiar things, right? Familiar things start to kind of lose their edge and lose, lose their influence. They become almost a little, bit, uh, a little bit too familiar. In fact, no matter how many times you, you sing Amazing Grace, at some point that amazing part of grace starts to kind of leak and, and we forget the amazement of God's grace. And for that, but, but the thing is, that could be the case for this. It could be the case for these verses. But I think there's also maybe something else at work on why this doesn't always just blow us out of the water, okay? It's not so much maybe that uh, grace is so familiar, but because the need for grace is actually so unfamiliar. You see, we quote these verses, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, all day long, but Paul doesn't just flat out say it with no context surrounding it. He's building up to this point, and he builds up to this point with verses 1 to 3. So going back, here's what Paul says. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest... We were by nature deserving of wrath. <laughs> by nature deserving of wrath. We don't, always, uh, we don't always quote that as much as saved by grace through faith. Often today, people don't believe that there's all that much wrong with the world or, or with themselves in particular. And as a result, we don't see very much need for God's grace. Sometimes the, the way that people talk about God's grace... Uh, Kind of makes it sound like, kind of makes it sound like they're describing donuts. Here's what I mean by that. Um, so Brett brings uh, our tech director. He brings donuts each Sunday. And so if you're interested in volunteering, you want to be a part of the worship team or the sound booth, you get donuts. Anyway, uh, he brings donuts, and so it has me, you know, donuts on my mind. And and so um, here's the thing though about sprinkles and donuts. Okay. Donuts are fine without sprinkles, right? But donuts are better with sprinkles, okay? 
Sprinkles are like the, sprinkles are the bonus onto an already really good thing. You don't need them, but it makes it better. And sometimes, sprinkles on our donut are kind of how we treat Jesus and his grace through faith. We treat Jesus basically as a spiritual sprinkle. Okay? Here's what I mean by that. That you accept God's gift of grace and you accept all the things that kind of come, come your way. All these bonuses onto your life. You know what? When life's hard and you're in trouble, you can call on your spiritual sprinkle Jesus to come and sprinkle a little bit of his grace and his mercy and his care and his favor onto your life and he's going to make it better. But when it's not so bad and you feel like you've got things under control, well, then Jesus can kind of stay over there, right? Your ordinary life is just spiritually enhanced in, in the way that some of us think. God's grace is understood instead as this, like, this gentle, non-encroaching, there just in case enhancement or enrichment of your life as it already was. Just take your life as it already was, sprinkle a little Jesus on top, make it a little bit better. To think of it in a different way, it's kind of like a, a puzzle that's missing a puzzle piece. As if you've got all the puzzle laid out and it looks, it looks perfect and everything's there, but it's just missing one piece and it's the God piece. And so you, you click that, that puzzle into that piece into there and then the whole puzzle is done. Now this might seem like a really appealing version of, of faith to you. And, and it make, might make grace sound very appealing. Um, after all, it doesn't require anything of you. It doesn't require change. It's not challenging in any way. You just kind of keep going the way that you're going, and, and you let Jesus ride shotgun, all right? That, that, that's a, the, the, the spiritual sprinkles. is kind of like having uh, Jesus ride shotgun in the journey of life, okay? He's just going to ride with you. He's going to point out construction. He's going to let you know where those Michigan potholes are. And, and even if he knows a route that's a little bit faster to get where you you already want to go, he might just kind of give you a heads up. The Pharisee loves Jesus when he sits in the passenger seat. Because when he sits in the passenger seat, we can go where we want to go. We can have our own dreams and our own whatever we want to do. And then we can call on the, on the, the guy riding shotgun if we need help with directions. If we get a little turned around. But when we know where we're going, just sit tight, Jesus. Keep your eye on the map. I'll let you know if I need you. But what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2 is that our need isn't for this like driving companion, that we need an entirely new route, a new life, a new heart. Um, a few weeks ago, I was, uh, I was driving home from, uh, from Rockford, Illinois. Okay, so Rockford, Illinois is northwest of Chicago, and so I have to drive through Chicago to get home. And I hate driving in cities, okay? I get stressed out in Hudsonville rush hour traffic, okay? Leah drives everywhere. I like never drive, okay? If she's with, she always drives. I do not like traffic. And so this idea of me driving home through Chicago alone was giving me nightmares all weekend. The the fact that I would have to drive home eventually. And so I'm on my way. I'm doing all right. I'm kind of clicking. I know where I'm going a little bit. GPS hardly even helps because I'm so stressed out. I can't even look at the road and that, so I'm just looking at signs. And finally I get on the expressway that I need to be on. Thank goodness. And I'm going, and I'm going, and I'm just like enjoying the fact that I can kind of cruise. I, I know most of the way home, so I can just kind of cruise on my way. And then after a while, my genius brain starts to figure out, I want to go through Indiana, not Wisconsin. <laughs> and so I'm looking at signs, I'm trying to make sense of things, I'm like, oh my gosh, 
I'm, I'm going north, and I need to be going south. So I'm on the right highway. I'm confident on where I'm going. But in reality, every turn of my wheels is just moving me further and further and further away from where I need to go. Now, of course, I was able to whip the car around and uh, uh, get going the right way. I made it home a little late, but it was fine. But it, it kind of illustrates the severe point that Paul is making in the first three verses as he introduces grace, as he prepares to lay out salvation by grace, which is that left to our own decisions and without grace, that we, are, we will not only go away from God, but we will do so cheerfully confident, positive that the decisions that we are making are correct. Left to our own, we will find ourselves confident, like the tax collector, that there's no way that God could possibly love you, that you are too far gone, you've gone down that highway too long, and there is no way that God could possibly rescue you from that path. Or we'll go ahead cheerfully confident that we've got it all figured out that we can take care of it, that God can just kind of sit there and be there in case we need him. And if we really need him, he'll be there. But we go cheerfully confident that we can do what we can do to achieve the salvation that apparently only Christ can do. But the message of Christ is neither of those two extremes, and it's also better than those two extremes. The message of the gospel is that the way to be made right with God is found in faith in Christ, and that way does not include following the rules so that you can belong. That way does not mean that, that your belonging is contingent upon the rules. In, in fact, in Ephesians 2.10, which we read, it says that we are saved for good works, not by good works, and you belong to God only through Christ. And a symbol of that belonging is the sacrament of baptism. It's something that we get to celebrate today as a as a church. You see, <clears throat> with baptism, we, we may sprinkle, right? We may sprinkle water, but it's not just, just this little sprinkling on your life. It's not just this bonus onto your already good enough life. Baptism is a sign of new life, of new life guided by Christ, a new life that is governed by the Holy Spirit a life with new priorities and values. You see, this is not just a bonus in our lives. It's our identity. And we're going to celebrate some of those baptisms today. And if those families want to come on up at this time, uh, as they do, let me pray for us. God, thank you for your gift of grace that it is not something that can be earned. God, we wouldn't want it to be earned. If salvation were earned... God, not only would we not be able to achieve that on our own, but Jesus, we'd always be wondering, am I good enough? What is the weight of my sin? What is the weight of my good deeds? God, do they equalize each other? All of these worries, all of these things that go through our mind, God, you release us from that by your grace, that we are saved by grace through faith. And Jesus, any person who comes and confesses you as their Lord and Savior, God, is, re is received by you. No action, no achievement. God, you achieved what had to happen on the cross. God, you brought the bar down low by hanging on the bar in your crucifixion. And you bring us to life 
through the Holy Spirit, and we get to share in your resurrection. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you again for making Rosewood a part of your day. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thank you.